your Bibles and turn to Leviticus chapter number 10. Leviticus chapter number 10. Uh, let me commend you on just a great job during our first off-campus activity on Saturday. How many guys were there? Let me see your hands. Man, we had a great time. Now, I think the person who had the uh, best time of all was my son Silas, because he got to be pushed in a stroller up the mountain the whole time. And uh, I think that was probably the best experience out of all of them. But I really want to commend you guys and ladies uh, as we were walking around. First, it wasn't really hard to know who the Bible college students were. And that's a good thing, okay? Uh, the men looked like men, and the ladies were modest. And uh, down in L.A., that's pretty rare. So uh, I want to commend you guys for that. And you guys had a great testimony down there. And then just the testimonies that I heard of being able to uh, go up to the observatory, look out over the lights of L.A., and I heard how God just stirred many hearts, even looking out at the lights and seeing the many souls that need to hear about Christ in that valley, and uh, that was just an awesome activity. I really enjoyed spending, ten, spending time with you guys for that. Well, in a few months, I am turning 30, and uh, yeah, I'm a little scared about that, and uh, I, I uh, wrote down a few things about what it's like to be a millennial, okay, now, um, I understand that most of you in here are Generation Z now, so uh, millennials are getting old, okay? And uh, actually, millennials would be anyone from 25 to 40 right now, uh, but we always get the blame whenever a different generation does something stupid. Have you noticed that? Uh, it, it doesn't matter who is doing something crazy. It's always, oh, look at those millennials. They're just so foolish. Well, guess what? I mean, we're, we're getting a little old, okay? And uh, we're getting up there. And uh, I, I noticed one time, even last year in spring break, uh, whenever all of the COVID restrictions were in place, and, you know, they always talked about those millennials going down, celebrating spring break and partying down there, and there's no social distancing, and they're not wearing masks. And man, the millennials, got the rap for that, okay? Now, we weren't, we haven't had spring break in like 10 years, okay? Uh, but we still were blamed for that, and millennials were the ones who were helping everyone learn how to uh, learn Zoom for the first time at work. That was us, but we got the blame for spring break somehow. Uh, we're not all that bad, okay? Let me tell you, we gave the world LaCroix and gummy vitamins, Okay? Uh, we learned perseverance through Y2K, all right? That was, that was my generation. Some of you guys might have to Google what that is, okay? Uh, we have fond memories of when the original animated Disney movies came out, you know, the ones that they're remaking right now, poorly right now. Uh, we miss the amazing smell of the VHS cases, okay? Uh, that was awesome. We learned to be detail-oriented by collecting T.Y. Beanie Babies, and we learned anticipation by never taking the tags off. 
Um, we proved our fear of commitment when we made AOL the most popular internet browser in the world and then left it one day, uh, standing in the rain with its dial-up connection in hand with no explanation, okay? It might have been because we couldn't make a phone call when you were on the internet, but uh, I don't know, mate, we should have written a breakup note or something to AOL, I don't know. Uh, we also became skeptical uh, because we were told that we would lose our hearing when we were playing the THX opening too loudly and our, we were going to lose our eyesight when we were sitting too close to the TV watching Toy Story for the first time. Uh, we developed trust issues by getting all of our computer advice from a paper clip. <laughs> Maybe that's why we prefer Macs now, I don't know. Uh, our greatest frustration was renting a movie from Blockbuster that wasn't rewound first. Those were simpler days. We learned the power of repetition by giving the world 20 Airbud sequels and 153 Land Before Time sequels. Now, if you were a Christian, you weren't allowed to watch Land Before Time, but I heard there were a lot, okay? Uh, we learned patience by being forced to wait a week to get our photos back from those disposable Kodak cameras at camp. And, uh, and then we just found out that none of the pictures were even distinguishable uh, when we got them. So we have our issues as millennials. But in all seriousness, I do believe that the millennial generation has amplified a desire for cor correct hermeneutics and expository preaching within Christianity. And that's really what I want to focus on uh, this morning as we are in Leviticus chapter number 10. We are going to read a familiar passage that has probably been preached quite a few times. You've probably heard some messages from Leviticus chapter number 10. And yet it's our desire to have a true hermeneutic when we approach this passage. And we don't want to preach our opinions. We don't want to preach our preferences. We want to find out what is the Bible actually saying here about two men, Nadab and Abihu. Now, obviously, God took the sin of Nadab and Abihu very, very seriously. But a lot of times we don't actually examine what the sin was. So this morning from Leviticus chapter number 10, we're going to examine the real strange fire and how we can avoid that in our generation. Now, if you remember last year, I preached a message from Leviticus chapter 9. I don't expect you to remember that. But Leviticus chapter 9, we learned about all the different sacrifices uh, that were in the Old Testament, and we learned how they apply to the Christian life. That was all in the revival of Leviticus chapter 9. A great revival at the end of that chapter, we see that the fire comes down from heaven, and the people fall on their faces, and they are brought close to God because of those sacrifices that they had made before him. But the first verse of Leviticus chapter number 10, the revival comes to a screeching halt. Verse number one, and Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. 
Then Moses said unto Aaron, this is that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Alzaphon, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said unto them, come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them in their coats out of the camp as Moses had said. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to open up your word this morning And Lord, as we approach a passage that might have been taken out of context sometimes and uh, might have been intermingled with some personal preferences and opinions, I pray that we would be able to cut all of that out this morning and that we would be able to understand what your word is trying to tell us and what your word is trying to warn us about as Christians today. Lord, I pray that we would take the sin of Nadab and Abihu seriously and examine our own lives this morning. And I pray that you would give us a wonderful time around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. October 8th, 1871. A date that probably doesn't mean anything to us now, but if you lived in the 1800s, this was the date of one of the largest disasters of that entire century. You see, in the middle of the night in Chicago, it is said that Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern and started the Great Chicago Fire. William J. Brown was the night watchman as he was tasked to ring the alarm whenever a fire happened in the city. And he noticed the fire around 9 o'clock p.m., but he did not ring the alarm until 9.32 p.m. Experts believe that if he would have rung the alarm at the right time or corrected his mistake, the fire would have been put out that very night. Yet the fire burned for 30 hours, killed up to 300 people, destroyed roughly 4.5 square miles of the city of Chicago and 17,500 buildings and left more than 100,000 residents homeless. This was one of the largest disasters of that century that could have been avoided if William J. Brown would have corrected his mistake. We don't know what held him back that night. We don't know if it was fear. We don't know if it was incorrect logic. We don't know if it was apathy. But whatever the reason was, William Brown was responsible for the deaths of 300 people in the largest disaster of the century. Whatever it was that was holding him back, it came with a heavy price. The fire consumed the city and destroyed the lives of thousands. There is a fire today in our generation that is consuming us as well. This is what the Bible calls strange fire. Now, many have speculated what this strange fire is mentioned in the passage, and and many have maybe taken it out of context and filled it with personal opinions. But this morning, let us take some time and examine the context of this sin of Nadab and Abihu and apply it to our own lives as well. Very quickly, let's look at three ways that strange fire burns 
today. Number one, strange fire is when a calling burns into contraband. When a calling burns into contraband. Now, you might not realize it or not, but Nadab and Abihu had an amazing calling on their lives. Matthew Henry said that next to Moses and Aaron, none of them were likely to be more honorable in Israel than Nadab and Abihu. These were the guys who were Aaron's sons. These were the guys who were next in line to take the high priesthood. And in Exodus chapter 24, as we remember the story of the children of Israel that were gathered at the bottom of Mount Sinai and God calls Moses up. He doesn't just call Moses up. In verse number one, God says unto Moses, come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship ye afar off. So they had an amazing calling on their life. God had mentioned their names from Mount Sinai. Later on in verse number nine of the same chapter, the Bible says, then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were a paved work of sapphire stone. And as it were the body of heaven in his clearness. So they were called by name before God when millions of people lived in the desert and, and, and wandered around in the desert. God said, I want to see Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. And not only were they called by name before God, but they were able to see God in all his glory. What an amazing privilege Nadab and Abihu had. Later on in Exodus 28, verse number one, God says, and take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Itamar, Aaron's sons. So they were called to come up to Mount Sinai. They were able to see God's glory. And now in chapter number 28 of Exodus, we see that they are called out from the assembly to become priests before God. These were the big men on campus or in camp. Okay, these were the guys who were voted most likely to succeed. These were the winners of the preaching contest. These were the ones that everyone looked at and said, look at that potential that they have. The sons of Aaron, God called them. They have a special anointing. They have a special calling upon their lives. And we live in a generation today that is not short of God's calling either. We see that God is calling our generation to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. He has called us to live a sanctified life. He has called us to service to him. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, for unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. I am come to send fire on the earth and what will I if it be already kindled? Jesus himself says that to whom much is given, much is required. And if we look around in our generation, we've been given much much. We've had great privilege. We've had great access to information like no other generations before us. We have a great privilege before us and we have a great calling. But what we must be careful of is when that calling 
turns into contraband. Look at verse number one again of Leviticus 10. And Nadab, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. The word strange here in this passage literally means unauthorized, prohibited, perverse, and from the outside. You see, as we study this verse, we would see that Nadab and Abihu probably created their own fire to put in their censers and ignored the fire that was on the brazen altar in the previous verse. Look at the last verse of the previous chapter, Leviticus 9.24. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. And then verse number one says, Nadab and Abihu, they did their own thing. So, so God sends a miraculous fire to consume the altar, the brazen altar before the camp. And all throughout these chapters, Leviticus 8 and Leviticus 9, we read a phrase that keeps popping up the whole time. It's actually said 10 times in these two chapters. The phrase is, as the Lord commanded Leviticus chapter 8, verse number 4, verse number 9, verse 13, verse 17, verse 21, verse 29, verse 34, chapter 9, verse 7, verse 10, verse 21, all include this phrase. As we talked last year about the sacrifices that they were participating in, they were all as the Lord commanded. They were consumed with every detail that God had given to them in chapters 8 and 9. But remember verse number 1? The Bible says, which he commanded them not. What a great contrast between chapters 8 and 9 and the first verse of chapter 10. What do we learn from that? We learn that the worship of God is not non-essential. Now, we use this word all the time, non-essential. These are non-essential things. Um, and to borrow just a quote uh, from uh, uh, one of my famous, uh, one of my favorite movies, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Okay? We keep using the word non-essential. But if God said it, it's essential. Right? So if the children of Israel looked at what God had given to them in the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, and they said, well, we're going to do, we're going to sacrifice this altar this way, and we're going to take care of it this way. Um, let's just go through and pick it apart. Okay, this is essential. This is non-essential. Oh, he wants us to do it this way. Well, that makes sense, but that doesn't. Let's just pick apart. No, that's not what they did. All throughout chapters eight and nine, they did as the Lord commanded. And for some reason, we'll try to assess their motives later on, but for some reason, Nadab and Abihu decide that they are going to do what God commanded them not. They are going to turn their calling into contraband. They did not take the fire from the altar of self-sacrifice. They bypassed God's way. 
Now you might think, well, man, I'm thankful that I live in the New Testament age. I don't have to worry about all of this, right? Oh man, I'm so glad I don't have to read through Leviticus and just study every single detail that God gave to the children of Israel on how to make a sacrifice. Uh, I'm glad that I'm living under grace, but let me remind you what Romans chapter 12, verse number one says. And I'm, I would think that me- most of you, if not all of you have memorized this verse already, but listen to what the New Testament says, I beseech you, I beg of you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, the grace of God, that ye may present your bodies a living, what? Sacrifice. What's the next word? Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This passage is not talking about salvation. It's not referring to God saving us. It's referring to an active, sanctified service before God, a pursuit of God's will. And though we live in the New Testament age, we have an even greater responsibility than Nadab and Abihu had. We have to continue and keep ourselves on the altar every single day. I love what Dr. Getch says when he says that the problem with the living sacrifice is it always crawls off the altar. We have to every day make sure that our worship, our calling is not considered contraband before God. The worship and sacrifice that we present to God must be holy not conformed to this world. So the first way that we are guilty of strange fire is whenever that calling turns into contraband. But let's get a little deeper. How did that even happen? How did Nadab and Abihu get to this place? Well, secondly, we see that strange fire is when caution burns into carelessness. When caution burns into carelessness. Now, Aaron and Moses had passed on a legacy of caution to Nadab and Abihu and to their brothers. And I can prove that later on in this chapter. If you look down in verses 16 through 20, there's a second story here. We always like to focus on the first story, okay? And, and, and we should, but there's another story here that kind of puts it in context. So, so we just read how that Nadab and Abihu offer this strange fire. They don't take the fire from the altar that God provided. They do their own thing. They bypass God and God smites them dead right in the middle of the camp. Talk about a, 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 a just complete uh, uh, party pooper, okay? I mean, good night. Uh, I mean, revival is going on and, and God smites them dead. Moses says, don't even mourn for them. Just pick them up in their coats and take them outside the camp. Now, obviously, that would kind of cause a stir among everybody, okay? And so, what happens then? Well, Eleazar... And Ithamar, these are Nadab and Abihu's brothers, also the sons of Aaron, they're responsible to sacrifice the burnt offering. And part of that was that they were supposed to eat part of the burnt offering, but they didn't. Now, we have Nadab and Abihu over here, and they offer strange fire. They get smote dead. And then over here, we got Eleazar and Ithamar, and they don't follow God's command either, 
but their lives are spared. Now, what was the difference here? Well, we have to look here in verse number 19. So Moses is obviously upset about this. He's had a hard day. Okay. So he goes to Aaron and he says, Aaron, uh, what are your sons doing? What in the world? Look at verse number 19. And Aaron said unto Moses, behold, this day have they offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. So they did that and such things have befallen me. What are those things that have befallen him? Well, his sons just died. And if I had eaten the sin offering today, should it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? Verse 20, and when Moses heard that, he was content. You see, Eleazar and Ithamar erred on the side of caution. You see, the reason that they didn't follow all the commands that were specific for that offering was they didn't feel worthy. They just saw their brothers killed because they had offered strange fire before God. They had no caution. They were careless. And, and then we see their, their brothers are, are doing what they're supposed to, but they, they miss this one detail because they, they say, I don't think I'm worthy of doing this. My brothers just got, just got killed. I, I don't know if there's sin in my life too. I got to make sure that I'm careful before I perform this duty before God. And when Moses heard that, what does the Bible say? He was was content. Why? Because Eleazar and Ithamar erred on the side of caution. They, they did not think that they were worthy of eating because of their brother's sin. Their violation was motivated by a desire to treat God holy. What does that mean in New Testament language? Just because I can do it doesn't mean I should. You see, we've lost in our generation the concept of erring on the side of caution. We like to live on the edge. We like to just get as far to the edge as possible before we fall down. Now, if you've ever visited the Grand Canyon, I don't think any of you would get right on the edge of the Grand Canyon. I think you guys would stay back a little bit. And honestly, we hear the stories, right, of the people who are trying to take selfies in front of the Grand Canyon. And what happens? They fall in. Now, and we make fun of that. But spiritually, we do the same thing. We try to get so close to the edge. I'm under grace. I can do it. That doesn't mean that you should. Now, last time I preached in chapel, Dr. Getch said that when you become a father, you get a lot of good illustrations. So I, I felt bad last sermon. I didn't have any illustrations about Silas. So this one, I have to, I have to uh, give you one, okay? So, so Silas is six months old and uh, he is obviously the first person to wake up in our house, okay? He has changed. I mean, before we had Silas, we wouldn't even eat breakfast, okay? That was just what old people did, right? But, uh, but now, good night. I mean, we have all morning. So uh, Silas wakes us up. He's the best alarm clock you could ever have. And, uh, and usually when we're getting ready in the morning, we'll put Silas on the bed. Now, lately, Silas has not started to crawl, but he started to scoot. Okay, so whenever we put him on the ground and my wife might be, you know, taking care of something in the kitchen, she puts him down on the mat, he will literally go about six to eight feet. Okay, he will scoot all the way. He'll roll, he'll scoot, he'll do everything he possibly can. He just hasn't figured out how his knees work to crawl yet, but he can get around. Now, what kind of parents would we be if every morning we set Silas down on the edge of the bed, right on the edge? 
We said, okay, Silas, this isn't going to hurt you. You're fine, right? I'm going to go brush my teeth and uh, stay there. I think probably the best word you could use for our parenting style if we did that was careless. Okay, what kind of parents would we be if we just put Silas right on the edge? If we knew, man, this kid rolls, this kid scoots, he goes everywhere. We have to keep our eyes on him the whole time. We would not be very good parents if we just let Silas live on the edge. What do we do? We put him in the middle of the bed. What do we do? We put him in a chair now to make sure that he can't roll or scoot off of the bed. We want to protect him. We want him to stay safe. First Corinthians chapter six, verse number 12, Paul puts it like this. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Later on in verse number 23, he says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. So Paul says, I am bringing my grace, my liberty under control because just because I can do it doesn't mean that I should. I don't want to be careless in my Christian life. We've lost all caution in our society and in our Christianity. 1 Corinthians 8.13 says, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. The same topic is discussed in Romans 14.16, where Paul says, Let not then your good be evil spoken of. What do we need to have a revival of in our Christian life? Caution. The fear of the Lord. Caution turned into carelessness. Now, just in the context here, how, did, how were they guilty of carelessness? Well, we talked about them not taking the fire from the brazen altar. But verses 8 and 9, you can read those later, insinuate that right after this happens, God says, don't be drinking when you're uh, giving sacrifices. So we would put that in context to say maybe Nadab and Abihu were drunk when they did this. They were careless. Maybe it was the wrong time, the wrong place, the wrong ingredients for incense. You can read through Exodus 37 through 9, where God tells Aaron, do it in the morning, do it at night. He talks about not offering strange incense, making sure that you're using the right ingredients. Whatever the carelessness was, could we say that this was a harsh punishment for Nadab and Abihu? But before we say that, let's remember that something similar happened in the New Testament as well. You see, at the beginning of the Old Testament, God gives the law and he gives an example to everyone how serious he is about it. Do you remember what happened in the New Testament in the book of Acts? This couple sold some land. They didn't give all the offering. In our eyes, we'd be like, well, what's the big deal? But God said, Ananias and Sapphira, you are going to be judged because of your carelessness. At the beginning of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, God tells us how serious he is that we should have caution. Guys, you've come to college and hopefully you've come to college to have the desire to learn, to to have the desire to have understanding. Many of you have decisions that are coming up in your lives that are huge, major decisions 
Some of you are deciding who you're going to spend the rest of your life with in marriage. You're deciding what ministry am I going to go to. You're deciding what path I'm going to take after graduation. And you're asking God for wisdom, which we should, James chapter 1. But let's remember what Proverbs says about wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Verse 10 of chapter 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Guys, you have some amazing decisions to make in just a few years and you're here at college to learn and to get understanding. But all of that begins with the fear of the Lord. All of that begins with the caution that God desires us to have. Lastly, and we'll be done. The last way we have strange fire in our lives is when celebrating burns into commandeering. Celebrating burns into commandeering. Now, obviously there was a great celebration taking place in chapters eight through nine. But Nadab and Abihu commandeered their father's office and their father's authority when they took this strange fire. You see, they assumed their father's office and entered into the holy of holies. How do we know that? Well, verse number two talks about before the Lord. They offered this before the Lord, mentioning before the mercy seat. But even a stronger argument would be from Leviticus 16, verse number one, where the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord, there's that phrase again, and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, speak unto Aaron, thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Whose responsibility was it to go before the mercy seat and to offer sacrifice? It was Aaron's. It was the high priest. Nadab and Abihu did it anyways. They got so caught up in the excitement, in the celebration that they got careless and they began to commandeer what their father's responsibility was. You see, there's a concept all throughout the Bible that we cannot miss, especially in the service, in the full-time service of God. Wait on the Lord. Now we can listen to some really great preaching and we can hear, go out and, and, and get it done, fulfill your calling. And, and that's all true. But we also have to remember that there's a waiting time too. There's a molding time. There's a growing time. Now, yes, some of that is in college, but guys, do you remember when you were in elementary school and you got to like fifth or sixth grade and you were the big guy, right? What happened when you went to junior high? You were at the bottom, right? And then you worked your way up in junior high and you were the big guy again. And then what happened in high school? <laughs> yeah, you were the freshman. And then you worked your way all the way up to senior. And, and man, everyone loved you and everyone congratulated you. I'm not really sure why. I mean, you just stayed in school. That was your accomplishment. But everyone loved you, right? You were, you were the graduating senior. And then you came to Bible college. And what happened? You're at the bottom of the ladder again, right? Guys, can I warn you? It's going to happen again, okay? 
You're gonna graduate and you're gonna walk across this platform and you're going to get that diploma. And guess what? You're gonna go to a ministry somewhere and you're gonna be at the bottom again. And that's okay. Remember what Dr. Getch says? At least he said it when I was in college. Hang on to the bottom rung because what is God going to do later? He flips it upside down. Guys, we have to wait on the Lord. We have to, as Psalm 27, 14 says, be of good courage and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Don't commandeer. Be respectful to the generation that has come before you who has earned the respect that they deserve and learn from them and grow under them and, and don't get frustrated when they have to correct you or they have to help you with this certain area. It's going to happen. Have a humble spirit and hold on to the bottom rung of the ladder. Noah waited 120 years for the flood. Could you imagine? God said, build the ark. Get ready for the flood. It's going to rain. 120 years later. Man, I wonder if God really meant what he said to me. I wonder if my calling is real. Abraham waited 100 years for Isaac to be born. Joseph was 30 years old before he saw his dream finally come true in Egypt. And Joseph was, I mean, he was a slave. He was in prison for that time. Whatever your future holds after graduation, it's not going to be like Joseph's was. And yet he remained true and God used him. Moses waited 40 years in Midian. Joshua waited 40 years to conquer the promised land. Could you imagine Joshua? Remember Joshua and Caleb saying, all right, let's go. Let's do it. Let's conquer the 12 spies. All right, here we go. I'm so ready. And then the people of God sin. And what does he have to do? He waits 40 years to fulfill the calling of God on his life. David waited in the sheep field. Solomon waited for wisdom. Elijah waited at Cherith. Elisha waited for the mentoring of Elijah. Hezekiah waited for God's deliverance from the Assyrians. Daniel waited for his vision of the future. Nehemiah waited to ask the king to rebuild Jerusalem. Jesus himself waited 30 years to begin his earthly ministry. What does that mean? Trust the wait. Trust the wait. We have this microwave mentality we have this mentality that, man, I'm just going to uh, turn the world upside down when I graduate from Bible college. And that's the goal. Yes. But don't be discouraged when you're scrubbing toilets. Don't be discouraged when you're painting the hallways. Make sure that you are willing to wait on God. I uh, have a little uh, thing in my Bible. This is the Bible that I received during graduation. And uh, I don't know if Dr. Getch remembers this or not. Class of 2013, he wrote us a little poem, and uh, he put this picture on the back. I don't know if you can tell what the picture is. It's a turtle on a post. And Dr. Getch reminded us before graduation that day that when you go out into ministry, you're a turtle on a post. When you see the turtle sitting on a post, you know that they didn't get there themselves. You know they really didn't have anything to do with sitting on that post. Someone put him there. What was Dr. Getch saying? He was saying, remain humble. Trust the weight. God's going to turn the ladder upside down. But remember what James chapter three, verse number one says, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. 
Now, do you remember the 70 elders that accompanied uh, Nadab and Abihu and all of them up to the, the Mount Sinai when we referred to them? Generations later, Ezekiel describes the same body, which, which turns out to be the Sanhedrin. And we know that they had some serious issues later in the New Testament, right? But even in Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a vision and he says that same body of, uh, that same governing body there uh, that went up to see God at Mount Sinai, they had the same problem as Nadab and Abihu. Generations later, yes, but in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse number 11, Ezekiel says, And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel, and in the midst of them stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. Even that body of, of governors who saw God had this problem too later on. What, what's the moral of the story here? Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it like this. The moral of the story as summarized by Moses is that those who have the privilege of being nearest to God must bear special responsibility to exemplify his holiness and glory. Verse number 10 tells us, make sure you put a difference between the holy and the unholy. Now, wasn't the veil of Jesus ripped, right? When Jesus died, the veil was open and we can go into the holy of holies now and we can rejoice with that and we can be thankful for that. And if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ to get you to the holy of holies, then that's the decision you need to make. But if you've already made that decision, don't forget that the character of God has not changed. God's righteous anger communicated a righteous purpose that a holy God is passionate about having a right relationship with his holy people. God needed for them to understand that only those made holy could enjoy all the benefits of a relationship with him. In closing, as many uh, disasters were in history, there were a lot of factors with why the great Chicago fire raged that night. William J. Brown told Matthias Schaefer to ring the alarm for the wrong area too. Not only did he wait 30 minutes, but he rung the alarm for box 342 instead of box 319. What did that do? Well, that sent all of the firefighters to the wrong area. After realizing their mistake, they did not correct it because they did not want to confuse the firemen. Experts say that if they would have corrected their mistake, the fire would have put, been put out that night. What's our mistake? Are we substituting our calling for contraband what God commanded not? Are we getting careless in our ministry or are we erring on the side of caution? Or are we just letting that celebrating give us a spirit of commandeering that we know better? Whatever the change is that God wants us to make this morning, let's change it so we can avoid the disaster of strange fire consuming our generation.